Hi everyone, hope all's well on your end, and welcome to this particular episode of the History with Sai podcast. Today I want to talk about a subject that I know many of you are interested in, especially after watching the recent series on ancient Canaan, and that's religion in the ancient Canaanite world, or at least some aspects of it. It's a pretty broad topic, which we won't be able to cover in its entirety over here, but for those of you not too familiar with the subject, this podcast should give you a good foundation from which to learn more. So, let's get started. As we defined in past programs, what we call Canaan and the Levant several thousand years ago was a geographically, economically, and especially politically diverse region that included all sorts of people. While many lived a rather nomadic or pastoral existence in small agricultural communities, ancient Canaan and the Levant are also where some of the world's first cities developed. In many ways, the world of ancient Canaan wasn't too different than that of the modern nation-states that occupy the same land today. Just think for a moment how different the modern political entities of Israel, the Palestinian territories, Syria, Lebanon, and Jordan are from one another. If you were to visit the different countries in this region, you'd pretty much notice right away that they're different culturally, politically, and even ethnically. This diversity obviously applies to religion as well. In a broad sense, the people are divided up into Muslims, Christians, Jews, Druze, Alawites, and other lesser-known groups. But even within these, there are seemingly countless denominations. It's pretty amazing just how many strands of belief exist in a relatively small area along the eastern Mediterranean coast. So, just like the area is extremely diverse today, the same was also true several thousand years ago during the Bronze Age, which in Canaan and the Levant was roughly between 3300 to about 1200 BCE. Of course, religion in the region existed well before this time, but for our purposes here, we're going to start in the 3rd millennium BCE when the first written and material remains of Canaanite and Levantine religion start to show up in the archaeological record with greater frequency. There are many early sites that shed light on Canaanite religious beliefs and practices. The earliest written records that we have from this region come from the ruins of what was once the city of Ebla, today in northwestern Syria. Texts found there from around 2500 BCE show close ties with the Sumerian civilization of Mesopotamia, especially the city-states of Kish and Ur. Thus, they might not be the best representations of indigenous Canaanite religious beliefs and practices. However, the site of Tel Ras Shamra on the Syrian coast, what was once the very cosmopolitan port city of Ugarit, does shed some light on early religion in the Levant. Now, There are many scholars out there who do not believe that Ugarit is a Canaanite city, and honestly, I'm not here to argue with them. However, it's pretty obvious that many of the people there practiced some form of popular Canaanite religion, as can be seen from the approximately 1500 cuneiform tablets that have been discovered there. For our purposes here, we're going to include it as an honorary Canaanite city, since much of what we know about Canaanite religion and culture actually comes from the texts that were discovered there. Other Bronze Age sites that have helped archaeologists and scholars unlock the mysteries of Canaanite religion include Hatsor, Lakish, Megiddo, Gezer, Aindara, and Alak, just to name a few.
While religious beliefs and practices varied by region, there were some overall characteristics that most of them shared, which will be the focus in this program. Like believers of other religious traditions, especially those of ancient Mesopotamia, Canaanites believed their gods and goddesses, along with other deities, actually inhabited the world in which humans lived in. These gods were ever-present in all of the phenomena that took place in the world, whether it was some mundane matter or a cataclysmic event. Everything from the birth of a newborn child, sickness, drought, a rainstorm, a flood, sunshine, or an earthquake, for better or for worse, was the doing of some deity. The gods, goddesses, and lesser spirits were always at work in the world. This, though, didn't mean that they were necessarily entangled within it. Being divine, and in most cases immortal, they were well above and beyond mere humans. Even though they technically did inhabit the world, they generally lived at its fringes. For example, at the top of a faraway, unclimbable mountain, or well into the distant horizon, where heaven and earth met. The god Baal, the patron of the city of Ugarit and a popular Canaanite and later Phoenician deity, had his mythological palace on Mount Zephon, the peak that locals today call Jebel al-Akra. His father, El, was said to live at the source of two cosmic rivers at the end of the universe. Such locations made the gods generally out of the reach of humans, though as we'll soon see, there were ways in which men, women, and children could commune with these higher powers. Though I said that the gods and goddesses of ancient Canaan were above and beyond humans, they still had many human-like characteristics. Their bodies, though larger and often with special features, such as an extra set of eyes or arms, were pretty much like human bodies. They were capable of thought and could be quite stubborn with wills of their own. And, like humans, they were emotional creatures. The main and most obvious differences between the gods and humanity had to do with their greater power as well as permanence. Gods and goddesses were mostly immortal. They were generally, though not always, more intelligent. And of course, they had the power to control natural phenomena that humans depended on for their very livelihood. It was the gods who granted good health, many offspring, good harvests, the accumulation of wealth, and success in battle. The opposite, however, was also true if the gods were angered or provoked. The Canaanite peoples, like those in other parts of the world at the time, knew that they were at the mercy of their gods and goddesses. And so, it was in their best interest not to displease them. So, let's take a look at some of these gods and goddesses. The oldest known pantheon in the Canaanite Levantine region comes from the city of Ebla. Its main, or most powerful deity, was the god Dagan, who was given the title Lord of the Land. In texts from the ancient city of Imar, in the Levant, he's given the title Lord of the Cattle, as well as Lord of the Seeds, implying that he was associated with farming and animal husbandry. In many of the same texts, Dagan is also portrayed as a warrior, and given the title Lord of the Military Camp. Of the other 40 or so gods that appear in texts from Ebla, the next most popular deity in their pantheon was Ada, also known in many areas east of Canaan as Adu, Adad, or Hadad. He was the storm god. 
In one text, he's said to be the son of Dagan. However, eventually, Ada would assume a new, more popular name, especially in Ugarit and along the Levantine coast. That name would be Baal. Another important god that shows up quite often in texts from Ugarit is El. Technically, the name El was both a generic word for any god and also the specific name of the creator god. He's often called the father of humanity and the creator of the earth. In Canaanite tradition, he's also the father of the gods and goddesses, 70 of whom form a sort of divine council. El's wife was Asherah, the mother of the gods and a deity who seemed to show favor towards humans, unlike her husband, who at times was seen as aloof when it came to the affairs of the world. In addition to Asherah, there were many other goddesses that made up the Canaanite pantheon. Two of the more important or popular ones were Astarte, a goddess most commonly associated with the sea, and Anat, the sister of Baal. Although a number of Canaanite deities were recognized and worshipped throughout the region, every town, city, tribe, or nation generally singled out one or two gods or goddesses to be its patron. Often, these deities would be further personalized with their names being followed by a topographical specification, making them distinct or separate manifestations of a particular god or goddess. For example, to his worshippers, the god Adad of Aleppo was not the same as Adad of Damascus. The reasons as to why or how a particular society chose one god over another to be its patron isn't known. There may have been many reasons that were dependent upon local conditions. For example, if a community relied heavily on farming, they may have adopted Dagan, known as the god of the land, to be their patron. If they were a more martial society, then perhaps a manifestation of the god Adad or the goddess Anat were adopted as their patron. However, once a deity was chosen, the community made a covenant with it. That basically meant that they would swear loyalty to that god or goddess and carry out whatever sacrifices or religious rituals were required by their respective deity in return for his or her protection. The god or goddess then became the national deity of that particular community or nation. Though their existence was recognized, all other deities thus became inferior to the national deity, with devotion to the national god or goddess becoming a sign of political allegiance and patriotism towards the community. In return for such devotion, the deity would fight the community's battles for it. Thus, it was Chemosh who fought the battles for the Moabites, Baal for the people of Ugarit, Dagan for the various Philistine city-states, and Yahweh for the Israelites. Due to its political implications, it's not surprising that the ruler, whether he was a chieftain or a king, held an important, if not vital, role in the official religious cult of his people. The ruler depended on the goodwill of the deity, whose voice was often heard through the priests or some sort of clergy. At the same time, materially, the national deity couldn't prosper without the support of the ruler. After all, it was the king who built his or her temple, or raised armies on behalf of the deity. Thus, the ruler and the religious authorities had a sort of symbiotic relationship where they both needed each other for support. 
In most instances, though, it was the ruler who was more dependent on the blessings of the god or goddess than the religious authorities. He was the one who needed the deity's endorsement in order to be accepted by his subjects. Though sometimes the ruler would himself also be a priest, it was always his duty to perform ceremonies and partake in, if not lead, religious festivals. In Ugarit, for example, the king organized the sacrificial banquet, interceded with the god Baal, blessed the offerings and food in a procession, and then distributed it to the people. It was through taking part in such processions that a ruler gained his legitimacy, both with the religious establishment as well as the people. Essentially, the king acted as a sort of father figure. In other places, especially towards the east, the term shepherd was used, with the people being his flock. With regard to worship, technically, this could have been done anywhere, as the gods and goddesses could be present at any and all places on earth. However, some spots were considered to be holier than others, and these eventually became sanctuaries, hallowed ground where the deity was either always believed to have been present, or at least close enough for humans to possibly receive an audience with him or her. The landscape of Canaan and the Levant in the 2nd and 1st millennium BCE was dotted with thousands of sanctuaries. Most of them initially were little more than makeshift altars made of earth or stone, sometimes with a crudely constructed pillar on which to put offerings. They were generally open-air shrines where seasonal sacrifices and local festivals could be celebrated. Most of these consecrated areas were outside of any nearby settlements or towns. In many cases, they were near a spring, well, or tree. These early shrines generally were also devoid of any statues or images depicting any particular deity. This was in contrast to cities. While many of the holy sites here may have started as open-air sanctuaries, eventually, on top or around these, more elaborate structures, known as temples, were built. These were literally deemed to be the earthly homes of the respective god or goddess. In fact, archaeologists at times have often had difficulty determining exactly which structures were temples and which were just large dwellings of upper-class individuals or kings. Initially, each city had one temple dedicated to its patron deity, but as time went on and peoples from other areas settled within it, the gods of these other people had to be accommodated for as well. And so, new temples dedicated exclusively to them were also constructed. Thus, a cosmopolitan city such as Ugarit, along with its main temple dedicated to Baal, also had temples dedicated to El, Dagan, and a number of other gods and goddesses. Inside the temple, priests and related personnel would take care of the particular god or goddess. This meant that they would provide daily meals to the deity in the form of regular offerings, once in the morning and once in the evening. Generally, this considered of a burnt offering, for example lamb, sheep, or a bird, a vegetal offering, such as a piece of fruit or some type of cereal, and a libation offering, which was usually wine, but could also be honey or milk. Though technically for the deity, the priests were also entitled to a portion of the offerings. I mean, let's be honest, someone actually had to eat the food. Now, 
Some of you have commented on the Canaanite videos about child sacrifice and why I didn't mention them. And to be honest, in a general history about Canaan that focuses more on political events, I didn't see the topic as being very relevant. But since we're talking about Canaanite religion and rituals, I'll quickly address the matter here. So with regard to Canaanite child sacrifices, there is mostly literary evidence for that. It's mentioned in the Hebrew Bible that some groups of Canaanites did practice child sacrifice, and several Greek and Roman writers have also claimed the same, mainly with regard to Carthaginians, who were the descendants of Canaanites, specifically Phoenicians, from the city of Tyre. Now, I'm not saying whether these accusations are true or not, just that one does have to be careful when reading such things, because these statements have been made by, or were written centuries after the fact, by people who may have had some bias against Canaanites and Carthaginians. In and around Carthage, cemeteries have been found with bodies of animals and small children, which had led some to believe that these are the remains of those who were sacrificed. But upon further analysis, archaeologists believe that these may simply have been children who died of natural causes or disease. I myself haven't studied this in much detail, and can't give a qualified opinion, but I at least wanted to mention it since I know it's a topic of interest for many of you. Anyway, temples were also the main sites for seasonal, sacrificial feasts. These would generally take place in autumn, during the plowing and sowing season, followed by another festival in spring, after crops had been harvested. There were also monthly festivals that were based on the phases of the moon. Along with sacrifices were more devotional forms of worship, such as the chanting of hymns in praise of the deity or petitions for aid. One hymn to Baal reads, O Baal, drive away the one from our gates, the warrior from our walls. Bulls, O Baal, we offer up. Vows, Baal, we will pay. Male animals, Baal, we will offer up. Sacrifices, Baal, we will perform. A banquet, Baal, we will serve. To the sanctuary, Baal, we will go up. The paths to the temple, Baal, we will walk. In general, most temples were open to all people, provided that they brought some sort of offering. If the visitor to the temple didn't bring an offering, they were prohibited, at least in the temple, from petitioning the deity. Often, the offering would be accompanied by some sort of vow that the petitioner would make. For example, a barren woman may petition a god or goddess to help her conceive a child, usually a son, followed by a vow not to eat meat for a specified period of time. In addition, most Canaanite temples had non-religious functions as well. Since some priests also acted as judges, Disputes were often brought to the temple for arbitration, especially in cases where the facts were uncertain. Temples also played an economic role in most Canaanite societies. To start with, they were huge money makers and acquired stocks of gold, silver, precious stones, and other valuables which were often referred to in texts as their treasures. The source of these mostly came from spoils of war, gifts and donations from individuals, taxes that the temple levied, and income from temple-owned properties and farms. This accumulated capital was used for a variety of purposes, including providing funds for the destitute, especially widows, 
who were seen as a very vulnerable part of ancient society. Many temples also functioned as banks by providing seed or venture capital for farmers and merchants in the form of loans, most of which were interest-free. So, I hope that this short program gives you a glimpse of the development and role of religion in Canaanite and Levantine society. In the near future, I'll also put out a program on Phoenician religion. Thanks so much for listening, I really appreciate it. Check out my YouTube channel for more programs on all facets of ancient history. You can also follow History with Sai on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Thanks again, and I'll catch you in the next episode. Take care, and stay safe.